Kids, you are dismissed. You can take a seat. Good afternoon. As, uh, as we said earlier, we're ending, wrapping up our series on stewarding privilege, and this has been this has been one of my favorite series for us to go through because I think all of us have felt a good degree of challenge, right? This idea of what is privilege? Is it even a real thing? And how do we remove the, the huge political uh, baggage that gets added to that? And what is the biblical view of privilege? And what should we do? How do we figure out if we have it? And when we figure that out, how do we steward that? And, and, and so this has been an incredible series for me because it's been uh, paradigm shifting for some things. And I'm hoping it's been the same for you. So, so just as an add-on to what uh, Jen brought up before, this panel discussion that we want to do, this is not just a time uh, to, to, for us to uh, wax eloquent and preach more sermons. Uh, we really want to have time to, to dialogue and to be able to say, hey, what does this mean for all of us? How do we bear out what it means to steward privilege uh, with the way that we live, uh, the way that we uh, do our jobs, how we even de determine what we want to do with our lives? We really want to dig into that. So this, we want to have real frank conversations. We're going to have opportunities for people to engage, to ask questions. We're going to do all of that. So please put that on your calendar. There's a story uh, about a man that was trapped in his house during a flood. You might have heard this before. It's a, uh, he's, he's, he's sitting in his house, and uh, the flood is coming, and he is praying. He's like, Lord, I'm waiting for you to save me. I'm waiting for you to rescue me. So he's waiting. The flood waters rise. His basement begins to, to flood even more. He moves from the basement to the, or from the first floor to the second floor, and, and, and a boat comes by, and he says, nope, I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. The boat keeps on going. The second floor begins to, to fill, and so he jumps on the roof, and, and when the roof, uh, as he's waiting on the roof and the waters are beginning to rise, another boat comes by, and they said, listen, we're here to, to save you. Hop in. And he said, no, I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. <laughs> Finally, the waters overtake the home, and now he's just kind of treading water, and he's just trying to make it, just trying to make it. And he's, he begins to, to, to kind of tread, and, and all of a sudden, the helicopter hovers over him and says, grab onto the ladder. We're ready to take you out of the water. You can be saved. Just hold on. And he said, no, no, no. I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. And so he drowns. He gets to heaven and he sees the face of God. And he says, God, why didn't you rescue me? And he said, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. You see, one of the things that is difficult when we think about the fact that God is sovereign, amen, God is completely in control. There's nothing that happens without him ordaining it and allowing it and then uh, supporting and, and empowering us to endure. But what does that mean exactly? Because many times there, there are things that, that we need to be doing that it's not clearly spelled out. This isn't, uh, there are certain things in the scriptures that are very clear. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. This is God's heart. This is how it looks. But then there are many other places where there's some gray area. Uh, what, what do I do? Sometimes we can almost fall into a situation where we suffer paralysis through analysis. I'm just, I'm waiting to get the clearest answer right now. I've been in, in, in situations where people have had some very extreme views on this. There are people who wouldn't wait, they would wait to hear from God to know which jeans to wear. And so there are times they just wouldn't move. Well, God didn't say whether we're the black ones or the blue ones. And I just live by the word of God. It sounds really holy, 
But here's the thing. What do you do? Where does, where does your will and your decision-making, how does that interact with the sovereignty of God? And then with that, how do you then, if we're called to steward privilege and we're called to steward for the sake of those who don't have it, how do you do that when you don't always have clarity on exactly what God is saying do? Either A, we make up stuff. Well, I believe, you know, sometimes indigestion shouldn't be called the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying real quick. Because you feel a thing does not necessarily mean God is saying said thing. But we can do that. We'll say, well, I, I just feel in my spirit. Okay, that's great. Here's the deal, though. Your prayers, the things that we pray to God for, more often than not, the answers to your prayers are actually your own hands and your feet, as long as they're in line with the words that God speaks. That this, is, this is the thing we have to grasp, which means the more that I grasp onto the heart of God and I begin to grasp the mind of God, then there are decisions that I can make as long as they're in line with that. God is still using that. All the things that God is bringing about, he uses his people to do that. So, so, so what do we do when we're in a situation where not only do I not know what to do, but I also am in a very bad situation. I don't know what to do with, about my, 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 I might be in an unprotected situation. I might uh, uh, stand to, to, to endure some horrific things as a result. How do I trust God then? I'm waiting for a clear word from God, and I don't know that I, that I have one. What do I do? Well, this is where we find ourselves at this part of the story with Ruth. You see, Ruth is somebody, as we talked about before, who is, if you want to talk about somebody who was in an incredibly unprotected people group, it would be Ruth. Here Ruth is, as we talked about last week, this, this uh, foreigner who marries into this Jewish family and adopts their faith and, and adopts the heart of the very heart of God. She, her husband dies. Her, her mother-in-law has lost both of her sons and her own husband. And so these women are now, there's nothing to protect them uh, within the law. There's nothing that will protect them in their community. They stand to suffer both being exploited financially, being assaulted physically. There's no one to actually have their back whatsoever. And honestly, they don't really know what else is going to happen because if you're a woman, you can't just go out and, and, and get on monster.com and rebuild your resume and put it up on LinkedIn and get another job. Like That's not the world that they lived in. And so, and so what is Ruth supposed to do? What is Naomi supposed to do? So we, we walked through what, what, what started there, right? Ruth said, well, listen, I know that, that I have some opportunities here. I can go out and marry again. I can go back to Moab, this foreign country that I came from. I can, I can go back. I can get remarried and start a family, and I can have protection because your protection was in your husband during that time. And so I can go do that. And yet, what did she tell Naomi? She said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Well, here's what she's saying. I am adopting the heart of God now. And here's what, here's what the heart of God says. He says to love your neighbor as yourself, right? He says to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. If she's taken on the heart of God, she's going, I can't love myself more than I love you, Naomi, which means I'm going to steward the privilege I have of being able to go out and make myself better, make my situation better, go marry up somewhere, I'm going to take that position. I'm going to take that privilege and steward it for your sake instead. So that's where we find ourselves. She now is, she, she starts to go work. She's working in this field and she runs into a man named Boaz who has this field. And we talked a lot about this. If you don't take anything away, the thing you have to get is this. And for those who are coming for the first time to hear this part of the sermon, however you have understood Ruth, please don't look at it as a romance story. It's not a romance story. 
Please don't look at this as uh, this, this survey on how to be a good woman and get a good husband, because this is not that kind of story. This ultimately is how do I steward what I have in order to benefit those that don't have? This story is ultimately not about romance. It's about redemption. It's about restoration. If you don't get that, then here's what we end up doing. We end up taking stories like Ruth, and we turn it into this formulaic approach, a how-to list. And here's what ends up happening. And see, as a man, I don't get this. I can only know this by talking to other people who've experienced this. But what ends up happening is, for those who don't get husbands, well, you haven't adhered to the list closely enough. This is how we shame each other. Oh, well, you haven't been. Were you like Ruth? Listen, Ruth worked. She didn't twerk. You know, we say stuff like that, right? <laughs> we, 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 we say those kind of things because we want to be able to shame people in. Listen, what were you doing? You need to move from the pole to the pew if you want to get, like, we say stuff like that because we want to shame. This is, it's easy. We would never do this to men in the same way, but we absolutely do that to women, don't we? Don't do that with this because you're actually starting to demean one half of the image of God. So what do you do then when you're Ruth and you're in this situation and you're praying and you're trying to figure out what the next move is? Well, I thought about something. I thought that this story seems strikingly similar to a, to a story that isn't as old. It's maybe a couple hundred years old, whereas this story is maybe 4,000 years old. And, and the story is one that I have to admit, I, I've, I genuinely love this story. It's a story called Sense and Sensibility. Yes, men, I highly advise you to watch it or read it. Watch the 1995 version, in my opinion, but that's a whole other uh, d- discussion. Emma Thompson, she does that thing. But okay, when you think about that story, there are some striking similarities between Sense and Sensibility and the Book of Ruth. I'll put a few down. The story opens with three important characters, a mother figure and two daughters, right? And, and Sense and Sensibility, you see Mrs. Dashwood and, and you see Naomi as mothers in the story. The daughters don't exactly line up because Orpah, don't confuse it with Oprah, Orpah ends up leaving. And Ruth has these qualities of, of, of Eleanor and, 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 and Marianne. And so you still have three characters to start. And you have a, a, another situation. The male caregiver, the primary male caregiver, dies. And so now there's a question on what happens. Because much like in Ruth, you know, back then, even in Jane Austen's time, if you were a woman... What did we say last week? You didn't have the luxury of marrying for love. This is why when we turn these things into romance stories, we miss the entire point. This, you, you getting married was a way for survival. It was a way to ensure that you could actually have a life. Because otherwise, you would have a life of nothing but servitude, possibly even being treated like less than human. And so here, here in this situation, you've got this caregiver that dies, and, and, and the women are left to fend for themselves. Also in the story, the mother figure, uh, she decides to, to move the family away. And so uh, in Ruth's case, they have to move from Israel. Uh, and, and in Mrs. Dashwood's case, they move from Barton College or Cottage, and they move away. They're both extremely poor. They both don't have any means. They have no inheritance. They, they both have a situation where they in, encounter uncommon kindness from an older man, Right? How many people saw Sense and Sensibility? That's right. I see all those hands. That's right. I saw somebody almost jump out their seat to let me know. <laughs> they see uncommon kindness, right? You've got Colonel Brandon, this, this incredibly kind man, and you've got Boaz, 
this really kind, this man showing so much kindness that Ruth is surprised. She's going, why would you show such kindness to me, a foreigner, right? Then you have uh, this faithful, patient love of that same man that shows as time passes, the young women who might be, seem hesitant to love the older man, and yet they're, they're, they're patient. You also see matchmaking mothers. See, pretty much just like now, outside of Tinder and eHarmony and Match.com, Mamas usually try to hook people up. Like, that's just still what happened. It happened then. It happens now. And so Miss, Miss Dashwood's doing the same thing. She's trying to think about, listen, uh, my, my daughter here, the only way for you to be able to make uh, a life for yourself and possibly even better our lives is to marry because this is the only way to steward what you have for the benefit of all of us. And so uh, they begin to do that. And the, the other similarity is, as we'll read in the story, The original love of the daughter gives them up for the next true lover or redeemer. You're looking at these. A lot of people have wondered if Jane Austen was just completely inspired by the book of Ruth when she wrote it. Because there's some uncanny comparisons. And finally, the daughter gets married to that much older, kinder man. These similarities show that, honestly, we're not that far removed from this way of thinking and living. I mean, honestly, the last eight, nine decades have been some of the newest things that a lot of humanity's ever seen. I mean, this, this is, we're talking thousands of years of women having to live that way. And even now, there are women in this, in this world that still have to live that way. And even though it's not codified as such here in America, there are women in America that still have to function that way. And in many ways, we kind of groom women to have to function that way. We groom women to say, listen, the best thing you can do is make sure you find a husband. But we live in a society where if you end up not finding a husband, what else are you going to do? You, you can do other things now, right? You don't actually have to feel like my only chance at actually having a full life is finding a husband. But we kind of groom uh, women and young girls to actually function in that way. And so then it's going, well, the, the end-all, be-all, and we said this a few weeks ago, is to have a husband. So if I don't have a husband, I must be living beneath my calling. I can't possibly be called to this, or God can't use me the way he could use me if I were married, because that's the, that's the higher calling. And so we've got to be really careful, because that's not actually what we're supposed to take from, from Ruth. We're, we're, we're supposed to be able to understand contextually just how dire this situation is. This isn't just somebody who's looking for a, a man with whom to be Facebook official. This is someone who's saying, I actually need my life bought back. And so you've got this, this incredible situation now where this woman is, is figuring out what's going to happen. And so now, we, we, now that we've kind of worked through the first two chapters, you get to chapter three, we've got a whole situation happening because Naomi now is going, well, okay, you went out into the field and this man was incredib- incredibly kind to you. Well, let me tell you, you may not have known this, but this man is actually your relative. He's actually a relative of Elimelech. Elimelech was uh, Naomi's husband who had died. And so she said, well, listen, if you, we'll find out why that matters in a minute, but she said, if, you, if you're going to go, if you're going to go back, here's what I need you to do. And so she hatches a plan. Now, this is where we have to get into something here, decision-making. You see, for a lot of people, they could say, man, you know what? That, this is, again, how we get into shaming, and it's really easy to shame women really quickly when you see this, because you're like, well, women equals manipulation. There's Naomi manipulating. Like any other person, they're just 
strategizing. Right? They're, they're, they're strategists and they're wise and they know how to think through it. But now Naomi is saying, hey, how do we figure out how to use whatever we have in order to better our life? And we're going, you're just so manipulative. It's amazing how we kind of use a double standard when it comes to that. And yet she's looking at Ruth and she's saying, listen, here's the plan. Here's what I want you to do. What you see in the scriptures, listen to what she tells her. Very beginning of chapter 3, she says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, that part right there is interesting. Just before there, when you look at that, it's interesting when you look through the scriptures and you'll see phrases that unless we have spent much time in agrarian society, it's really easy to just overlook That, just kind of skip to get to the good part because we want to get to the romance of Ruth and Boaz and we miss something here. Ultimately, when when they were winnowing, you got to remember, this is the end of the harvest. The harvest was a big deal because ultimately the way that you lived that year was based on what you brought in during the harvest. And so when the harvest was over, people would, uh, they were celebrating, they would eat, they would drink, they would dance, they would enjoy because they reaped a really, really good harvest. But there still was work to be done because you had all of this barley, you had all of this, all these grains, and you had to figure out what to do with this harvested grain. So they would bundle it, excuse me, out of the field, they would carry it to this thing called the threshing floor. This is this open space of exposed bedrock where you would start going to work. And so they would take these, these, these bundled grains and wheat and barley and they would thresh it, which meant they would take a hammer and they would just beat the grain, beat the grain, beat the grain. They, were doing it, they would bring animals in to trample the grain in order for the grain to start breaking apart. Because ultimately when the grain would break apart, the kernels from the grain would start to come out. And so now they're wanting to crush, uh, they're wanting to remove the husks from the kernels and when they would winnow, that's what they would do. They would separate the kernels from the husks. They would take some of the loose <clears throat> husks and they would actually throw it up into a light wind. That's why when they did this, the wind had to be really light. You see uh, Naomi referred to that as being kind of a light wind. And they would want that to happen because when you threw it in the air, it would blow all of the light grains away and all the kernels would fall. So he's spending a lot of time working. He's having to say, okay, I've got a harvest. I'm thankful that we've got the harvest, but let me really figure out how much of this we can actually use. So, so he's doing that, and, and Naomi knows that. So she's like, listen, he's going to be winnowing. And when he, while he's winnowing, you're going to go there. And then, he, then she says to him, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say... I will do. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting. Because when you read this, and there are so many things that have been written about what this might mean or what this doesn't mean and what what exactly is going on. Because ultimately, you know, Naomi is basically saying, you need to make yourself known to this man. She's ultimately saying, "Um, if if this plan that we're going to hatch, I need you to go there. Make sure that you wash yourself. Make sure that you're smelling nice. <laughs> Make sure that you got, you know, it's, it's interesting because when pe- people kind of wonder, like, what's going on through her, through, in her mind at the time? Because, again, she's doing this because she wants to take care of her and Naomi. But, you know, she's like, listen, you know, go get your good, put on that red dress. Old school Johnny Gill, for those that don't know. Get on them high heels. 
Make yourself look pretty. Make yourself clean. And go out there. Now, now, honestly, that's usually where a lot of us will start. We'll stop and we'll go. Oh, this is really funny. She's being attractive, and she's going because that does matter. And it's interesting. It's not. We don't overlook that. It's not. It's not less than this. It's not less than her wanting to be uh, alluring in some kind of a way to be able to just be attractive. It's not. It's not less than that. And so she 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 tells her, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to clean yourself up. I want you to 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 go and visit him and uh, uh, go while he's on the threshing floor. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and while he's sleeping, go and uncover his feet. And so the scripture says she went down to the threshing floor. She did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now listen, that's some amazing game spitting right there. For those of you that you don't know, that's a great way of courting someone. <clears throat> you're coming in and you're spitting games with somebody. It's, you know, listen, when you're, when you're having to make a choice... And you're trying to trust God like only God can turn their heart your way, right? But, but you're taking your, you're shooting your shot, as they say. I, I remember uh, once, I, some of you know this story. I remember once I, uh, I, there was a girl, I was in eighth grade. You're, getting, you're in that real awkward mode because middle school is just a horrible time. Like you're just figuring out your body and figuring out your head. You don't know what's going on. Hormones are crazy. You're just like a bunch of demons in you. Like you don't really know what to do about it. And, and, but you know, you know that you want companionship of some sort, but you don't know how to figure it out. So, so I'm walking over to this girl. Her name was Katina Stansberry. Never forget it. And I'm walking over. I see her, I see her in the lunchroom and I really want her to notice me. So, you know, I start walking like you got shot, like in the back of the leg. And I'm like, I walk over to her. Now, back then there was a commercial, uh, there was a milk commercial when it was, it was called milk, it does body good. So I walk over to her and I was like, yo, I see you, I see you drinking milk. You know, they say it does a body good. And I was like, I got her. I got her, right? I was confident, felt like I had prayed on it. I said, I said, I'm just waiting for her to respond. And she said, well, it ain't done your body much good. See, see you, you, you try to use the best wisdom you have, and you go forward, and here's the deal. When you're making decisions, either God is going to correct you in the midst of the decision, or he's going to bless the decision. So, so this is what we have to do. There are times where it's like, okay, based on everything I know about God, this is, this is the best I can do with this. And either A, I'm going to be chastised and corrected like I was, tail between my legs, about four years later, she tried to come after her brother, but I'm not going to talk about that right now because <clears throat> she might listen one day. <laughs> so she got chastised. No. <laughs> but this is, this is ultimately where Ruth is, right? Ruth is actually having to, she, she's having to trust her, her mother-in-law, but she's basically going, based on what I know, I'm just, tr- I'm following the Lord. She's not actually doing things sinful here. Uh, she, she, she's basically going, okay, this is gray area. This is hard. This is difficult. But ultimately, being able to steward whatever it is that I have, even my beauty and my availability, I want to be able to steward this for the sake of the family. I'm not just doing this for me. So this is more than just, you know, when you think that, that uh, she, she gets all dressed up and it's like, okay, cool, she's grown and sexy. She tried to come in there and meet with her, right? It's deeper than that. It's actually this. Here's what we remember. What is, what is, what is, what is Ruth? Ruth is a, she's a widow. 
when you're a widow, what kind of clothing are you wearing? You're wearing mourning clothing. See, that's the reason why Boaz didn't come for her when she was in the fields. He just protected her. Why did, you know, he saw she was beautiful and he knew her story. What would have made him not begin to talk to her before? Because he was respectful of the fact that she was a widow. She was mourning. It would have been unbecoming for a godly Jewish man to come upon this woman in the middle of her mourning like, I know it get cold at night, right? So he doesn't. Because he clearly knows that this is, a, this is a widow. So when she shows up in non-widow clothing, she shows up in, in clothing that says, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually available. It's deeper than just uh, randomly hoping I get found out by somebody today. But, and, and, and Naomi knows that. So she sends her. She sends her there. And the, the, the instructions she gives her are very curious, too, because ultimately she's saying, she's saying basically silently go in before he's there, and obviously after everybody has celebrated, they've eaten, they've drunk, all that, all that is good. Uh, they're, they're all good to go. He's ready to go to sleep. A lot of, a lot of uh, commentators will say that, that during that time, uh, you would have had uh, people outside kind of guarding all of their barley and their grains. And so he likely would have slept right on this hard threshing floor, really close to everything that he had just winnowed. So he's there. She is hiding behind the barley, the, the, the bale or the big stack of whatever, and she's waiting for him to go to sleep. And when he goes to sleep, she goes down by his feet crosswise. And that's, again, this is where, where a lot of writing gets really a little bit mixed up on this because while there's no question that she's being alluring on some level to say, hey, I'm here, I'm available, uh, it's, it, I think sometimes we take some additional liberties that, that, that the scripture doesn't afford us. We've got to be very careful with that. Because, because one of the things we know is that during that time in the Eastern world, the position that a servant would often take, the servant would come in and sleep right at the foot of the master. And oftentimes the servant would be there and they would say, hey, I'm here, I'm available. If you need anything, I'm here. And what Naomi tells her to do, she says, go there and uncover his feet. Now, why would that even be something you would do? Well, Ultimately, she wants him to wake up. If you've ever slept in a bed with another human being in it, and somebody begins to pull the sheets off of you, do you wake up? Sometimes you get real mad and yank it back. Let them be cold. Just snatch it. Well, this is kind of what, what's happening here. She's, she lifts up a little bit of the, the, the uh, ultimate, either an animal skin or some kind of a blanket, and lifts up so that his feet are just cold enough so that ultimately he has to wake up. So, now listen, y'all, please understand, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm not telling none of y'all who's trying to get married to go run up in somebody's apartment and be like, your feet cold? Please don't do that. My pastor told me, please understand scripture properly. Please, I'm not trying to bail anybody out of jail. But she does, she, she, she does this and she waits for him to wake up. Why? Because here's the deal. They need time to talk alone, and she knows, and Naomi realizes the only way to get time to talk to him alone is this way. Go in there, sneak in there during the time, wait for him to fall asleep. Now, please keep in mind, this isn't just, it's so easy for us to now look at a woman like this. See, any woman that would behave like this now would be really easy to refer to her as the lead character in a Kanye West song, right? I'm not saying she a gold digger, but, but here's the deal. In those days, in no way was that gold digging. That was survival. 
So understand the plight of this woman. She's going in and going, listen, I'm taking a huge risk right now. This is a huge risk because here's the deal. What she does, she goes in and lies down on the threshing floor. Do you realize what that would have looked like if anyone had seen her? This, this is not behavior that would have actually been becoming of anyone either because people would assume, oh, what is it that you're going to do? What, why is it that you're actually going and, and behaving in such a way? And so ultimately when she gets there, you do realize that in the scriptures, you notice that there's, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a scripture in Hosea where God is calling out Israel, and he tells Israel not to play the whore and returning favors on the threshing floor. Why does he say that? Because those are, that's exactly what prostitutes would do. They would see people after they've done work, after they've been done working, and they would go there, and all of a sudden they would just kind of wait for them to, to, to arrive. Well, she realizes, listen, I'm not that kind of girl, and I don't want anybody to actually notice that. This is where decision-making gets really hard, right? Because it's like, she knows what, at her, in her heart of hearts, this is not what I'm going to do, but I also know how it might appear. This is hard. It doesn't necessarily get, this isn't something that God says, go do this, don't do this. The, the point of the matter is that this is very difficult. This is a very hard place to go, but you have to know the motive here. And the motive here is not to go and get involved in any kind of salacious situation, but she knows that if she's seen what this would look like. So you realize how risky this is, because if anybody sees it, A, if anybody on the outside sees it, she's going to be maligned and possibly even stoned. If, if Boaz misinterprets her actions, he can then call her out and actually expose her to the community, and something horrible can happen to her again. She's taking a lot of chances here, but she trusts Naomi, and she trusts God. So she's, she's there, and she's kind of figuring out, okay, I, I'm... I'm going to expose his feet. And so she, she does. The chill of the night air begins to wake him up. We know that this wasn't a, a normal custom because if it were normal, she wouldn't have had to sneak, right? She wouldn't have had to be secretive. But she goes. And when he wakes up, you, you, the other thing that you don't think about is this. Everybody is banking on the fact that Boaz would not respond the way a lot of men would have responded. You know how easy it would have been to just take advantage of her there? You know how often that happened? We talked about this, that how often that would happen, the kind of assault that would happen. And much like today, if a woman claims to be assaulted, people just would not believe them. And even when there were witnesses, it was really easy to be able to, to kind of diminish those testimonies. And so these women would end up being punished or sent away. She stands to lose a lot here. This isn't just, uh, this isn't just her just going for like Netflix and chill. This is a deep situation where she's trying to figure out, how do, how do I do this well in order to be able to take care of me and my family? And so we, we, we have this, uh, this, this woman. She's bathed. She puts on perfume. She's in the dark of the night. She goes to this field where a man is sleeping, and she uncovers his blanket. On paper, that just looks like not a, not a, not a good thing. And you see him eight, verses 8 and 9. He gets startled, and she says, spread your cloak over me. Now, what does that mean? Why is she saying that? Well, let's go back to what we started with. Oftentimes, when you pray to God, the, the answers to your prayers are often in your own hands and your feet, as long as they're in accordance with the words that God speaks. Well, what did, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, what did he say to her when he talked to her? It's interesting, because he actually prayed. He actually said something. He said, after he met her and after she was working in the field, he says, the Lord repay you for what you've done. 
and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She's basically, she's basically flipping his prayer back to him. He's basically saying, I, I pray that the Lord will restore you and bless you and bring good things to you. I pray that he will cast his wing over you. And so she very symbolically says the very same thing. Hey, by the way, use your hands and your feet. You can answer that prayer. Hey, will you actually let your blanket come and cover me? That was something throughout the Old Testament. And even in the Eastern world, the Middle Eastern world, that was something you would use when you were taking in or you were actually taking a bride. You would say, I'm bringing my cover, my blanket, my, my tunic over her. So she's basically looking at him and proposing a proposal. Oh, wait, that women shouldn't do that. <laughs> she does. She's basically looking up and saying, I want you to answer the very prayer that you prayed. You know how easy it is for us? We talked about this before, how fruitless thoughts and prayers without actions are. How easy it is to just be like, you know, I, I really want to see you restored. I really want to see things work out for you. And that my thoughts and prayers are with your restoration. And she's saying, that was a really nice prayer you said in the field. Can you put some hands and feet to that? And so here she is. She's, she, she says this to him, and, and as soon as he says it, as soon as she says it, you see him immediately like rejoice. He's surprised. He even says something that I find really interesting. He says, uh, you look at verses 10 through 18, and I think it's so interesting. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You do realize, see, this is not about let me just go and just bag the first person that is wealthy or is interested. This is not that at all. He's saying, listen, if you wanted to, you could easily have found a young, wealthy man. If you wanted to, you could have done what you could have followed, whatever your proclivities are, and it wouldn't necessarily have been wrong. You, you could easily say, hey, look, this is the target person that I'm looking for. This is it. And he said, yet you've shown me a kindness because instead of just choosing whoever you would normally look for, you've actually come to me for this. See, that he sees this as an incredible kindness on her part and actually her stewarding that privilege in and of itself because she could have. She could have easily found somebody else. And he looks and he, he says that and he's super joyous and, and excited and he's saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. But he also follows what the customs are. Again, he does you're, you're, you're making decisions, and in the midst of it, you're still trying to follow what you know God's heart is and whatever the law is. And so he's going, listen, this is, this is great. Okay, we, we got a little thing going on here, but we, you have it. There's somebody else that's actually in line to marry you before I am. This is where we need to understand this, this, this uh, phrase known as the kinsman redeemer. Now, We've all heard, if you've been to church in any period of time, we've heard of this before. We, we understand that ultimately there was a practice in place. Most people think that it might have even been uh, starting to die out even during that time. We don't actually see anything in the scriptures that points to a kinsman redeemer. Now, before you respond, there are examples of something in Levirate marriage, right? If you were from the tribe of Levi and, so, and you died, you were the husband and you died and you were a Levite then it was incumbent upon one of your brothers to then marry and raise the children as if they were yours. So in other words, you are, your brother dies, you've got to make, so think about this, like think about you getting ready to get married, if your brother's getting ready to get married, you're like, yo, would I want to be with her? 
hey, bro, can we talk for a minute? Like, for real, like, I, I think she mouth breathes. No. <laughs> so now you're in this weird situation because, because if that were to happen, here's the deal. There was incredible punishment that would come because if you were a, uh, from the tribe of the Levites, it was you had to then marry the woman who died who was the wife of your brother. Now, that's pretty much where the law ends. We don't have any evidence of any further kinsmen other than that. Yet here we see that there was some type of practice that was in place. And ultimately, we don't know how the whole hierarchy worked. We don't know how they organized it. But here's the deal. There were people who were related. And if there were, if there were no other people, like brothers, to be able to marry, then they had some other levels to go. And so uh, we don't know how far that was, if it was a distant cousin, an uncle, or what have you. But Boaz is saying, listen, there is someone else that's actually closer in the line. And so we need to follow those rules first. So he said, listen, let me, we're going to see if he, if he wants to do this. And it's really, you know, it's, it's hard, again, if you, don't read, if you don't read these scriptures through Eastern lenses, if you read them through Western lenses, you miss things. One of the things you miss is that for the longest time, Again, the scriptures are just describing. They're not saying it even should be this way, but for the longest time, women have been treated like commodities. It, this is like a part of the property. This is a part of the deal. And so she knows that. So they have to work in the midst of what is. And so this is what they're doing. And so he's basically saying, there's somebody else that actually has a right to you before me. And even whether we agree with it or not, that's the law as it is right now. So we're going to honor that. But at the same time, this is, you can tell there's a huge heart of faith that they're both having. And maybe even they know that whoever that man is, we don't know what his name is. They know that there are issues that he has that likely will make him not even want to do it. So they go in and he gives her a plan and he, he starts to, he tells her, listen, put on a cloak, stay the night. I know this sounds like something else, but it says stay the night. That's easy to say that. By the way, we're getting upon Christmas. Nobody, just think twice about baby is cold outside. Just think about the lyrics real quick. It's kind of creepy and weird. But, but that's not what this is. <laughs> and so he's, he, he basically says, stay because I want to protect you. Why? Because if you go home now in the middle of the night, it's midnight. If somebody sees you, you could be attacked. Something could happen to you. Or if somebody sees you, they'll assume some things and something could happen to you. So let me protect you here. And then when you wake up, wake up at the crack of dawn. Wake up at the crack of dawn where it's hard for people to really recognize you. Take this big bale of, gar of, of barley or, or hay and take this uh, out with you. So people think that, you know, you've got, and this is a gift for your mother-in-law. And so she goes and she, she walks home and she goes back to her mother-in-law and she tells her what happened. And then Boaz. So who have we seen already? We've seen Ruth steward her privilege. We've seen Naomi steward her privilege. And now we're seeing Boaz steward his privilege. So Boaz is saying, okay, listen, I, I'm going to go talk to the one to whom you should be betrothed first. I'm going to go to this guy. And Boaz is pretty clever. He goes to him first, and he basically says to him, hey, listen, uh, there's somebody that uh, needs to be redeemed. You are the redeemer, right? Now, why, why is that necessary? The other thing we didn't mention is this. If you were a woman, what did you not get to have? Any kind of inheritance. So that means that if your husband died, whatever field he had, you no longer have any right to that field. So typically what that meant was that somebody would have to come and buy that field from you. Now, when you think about buying fields, it's interesting. It's not like property now. It's not like I own this, this is mine, give me anything as long as you're on it. Actually, it wasn't that. 
You see, those of us who remember, if you know throughout Old Testament law, every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. Now, oftentimes when we understand Jubilee, we think, yay, every 50 years I can be forgiven for all of my financial indiscretions. Yay. No, that's not what that is. This isn't like an excuse to be financially irresponsible either. See, ultimately what this meant was when you owned land, it was like having the, the, the title. So the title would be in your name, but you were never allowed. You couldn't reap the benefits of the harvest that was on the land. There were people who would actually be working that. And so now they technically had right to reap all of the benefits of the harvest. And then every 50 years, all the land would go back to the person who's on the title deed. And so, and so here's what that meant. You could have the land, but you might as well not have it because you couldn't actually reap any of the benefits from the land. And especially if you're a woman, now it's like, okay, my husband's gone. I can't get any benefit from this land. I'm forced to now have to give or sell this to someone else. And this is it. I, don't have, I cannot inherit this for myself. And so here's the deal. If, if that's the case, I have no way to actually live. I have no way to care for myself. I have no way to generate income. I'm going to be poor and a beggar for the rest of my life unless somebody who's related to me can, can automatically get first access to this land by marrying me. That is the kinsman, relative, redeemer, one who buys back. And so he tells her, listen, there's a kinsman redeemer that's closer than I am right now, so we've got to talk to him. So he begins to talk to this man. He's in the gates, the city gates. That's where everybody would gather. And so they're out in the front of the gate, and they're, they're talking, and they're going through, you know, whatever it is, the deeds of the day and the laws. And, and he goes to talk to him, and he basically says, hey, listen, there's somebody who, uh, who is here. There's somebody who is ready to be redeemed. Uh, do you want to buy the land back from Naomi? And it's interesting the way he words it. He says, uh, he says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he's very honest. He's not being deceptive. He's not lying at all. He's flat out saying, tell me if you want to buy this land because I want to buy it if you don't. He's very upfront with his intentions. He's very clear about what it is that he wants to do. So he says, listen, tell me if you want to redeem it. If you don't, I'm going to redeem it. And so it's interesting because he almost kind of, he does kind of bait him into it. He's like, wait, all he mentions is the land first. And the guy goes, land? I'll take it. I want land. And the guy goes, great, you'll take it. Awesome. By the way, now that you got the land, you also got to take the wife. If you take the wife, then that means there's a lot of care that you have to provide for her. And when you give her a son, all of this land that you have bought, it's his inheritance. It's not yours. You see, because that was the point of it, right? You see, if he gives her a son, if they have a son, that son gets raised by, by her ex-husband's last name, with her ex-husband's last name, not his. That kid is not treated like his own seed any longer which means that child has full access to that land. You understand? So, so for him, he's going, wait, I was ready to get the land. I was ready to get the benefits. I didn't know I was going to have to get her too. Another, or, or she's pretty. I really like her, but I didn't want to have to deal with all the baggage that's attached to her. So it's, it's an interesting thing when you want to be swept off your feet, but they're not ready to carry you. 
And this is actually what's happening. This is, a man, this is someone who is going, oh, yeah, that looks great. I, I love that. I love that idea. I, I would love to have uh, this land because of all the things that I can get for it. And yet now I have to give so much to her. I don't care, men or, or women, be very careful about the one who wants to get far more than they want to give. That's not the heart of God. You see, ultimately, relationships are never supposed to be about just reciprocal transactions. It's, about, it's supposed to be about restoration. Marrying this person, what do I have to do? What, what do you need for me so that I can be a part of your restoration? And the other person should be saying the same thing. We should be in a competition over who can restore the greatest. This is where this incredible picture of this kinsman redeemer comes in because ultimately, Boaz has the heart of a kinsman redeemer. This other man doesn't. So the man goes, you know what? You're good. You take it. I can't do it. I ain't got it. So he does. He backs away. And the man is, is it's so interesting because this man is ultimately saying, Ruth, I know that, I know that the baggage is there. I know that you come here with bad credit. I know that you come here with a bankruptcy. I know that you come here with with all of these outstanding loans. I know that you come here with repossessions, but I want you and I want your baggage and I want to restore it. So he does. And and when he marries, the, the last thing is, and this is the thing that's really so beautiful because when he marries her and they have a child, this is where you can easily skip this too. They have a child and this child uh, is named Obed. It's short for Obadiah. It means servant. And Obed, when he's born, it's so interesting. You really don't hear anything else about Ruth after that, right? Because Obed comes, and they see, uh, they, they kind of give you a scene of Obed sitting on his grandmother's lap, Naomi. And everyone's coming to Naomi, saying, you are blessed. You are blessed. They use these phrases that talks about, uh, it, it's, it's so interesting the way that they talk about it because they use these phrases saying, this is, this is the restorer of life. Why would that be? Because Naomi now has an heir. You see, the things that God gave you, the things that God created you for, when they're lost, he buys them back. He basically says to this, he, he basically kind of shows, listen, all the stuff that happened, these men that have died, you being stuck with, I don't know what else I can do. I have, no, I have nothing else. I can't build my life back up. God says, that's all right. You give me your life. I'm going to build it up for you. Yes. So he gives them this, this young boy. Now, it doesn't end here. Well, how does this fit in then with what we started with? Making decisions, trying your best to make decisions in lieu of what God's word says. How, how do we go past that? How does this actually uh, come in contact? How does this coincide with God's sovereignty. How do we understand that even in the midst of all of our good, bad, and gray area decisions, that God is still the author, he's still the finisher of our faith, he's still on the mission, and he's still using us? How do we know that? Well, take a look at the very end of the chapter. Look at the lineage of Obed. You see it quite quickly. First of all, Obed gives birth to a man named Jesse. Jesse gives birth to a man named David the first righteous king that Israel ever had. Not only that, but David is who? He's the ancestor of whom? Jesus. Do you not see God's power in the midst? God is saying, I will take, I will take a prostitute like Rahab. I will take an immigrant, widow, nothing of a woman like Ruth. And from their lineage, I will bring the one who is the ultimate restorer. I will bring the one that is the ultimate redeemer. Those that have sold you out, I will buy you back. 
God is on the throne and there is not any decision you make that stops that. This is our God. So when you think about the fact that Jesus from the, it's, it's so beautiful when you think about what God says and what Paul says about Jesus. If you don't understand that Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. If you don't understand that Jesus is the ultimate restorer, what Jesus says is, listen, the same way, the same way that Boaz looked at that bad credit and said it, Jesus said, I'm not, I'm not scared of Equifax. I'm not scared of that bad mortgage. I'm not scared of that bad credit. I'm not scared of that repossession. You know what? Your car was repoed. I own the dealership. Your house was taken from you. I own the mortgage. I'm the one that's the restorer. They took it from you. I'm buying you back. Galatians 4 says, but when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we may be adopted as sons and daughters with full rights. And because you are sons and daughters, God sent this spirit of his son into our hearts who calls Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. And if you are a son and a daughter, then you are an heir through God. Jesus is the great redeemer. Jesus is the great restorer. Jesus is the one that actually ultimately covers even the gray area decisions, the bad decisions. God says, ultimately, even the things that have brought you incredible shame, even the things that have brought you complete ruin, the things that have brought you nothing but regret, I come to buy all of that back. I take all of that. I take it onto myself and I give you my perfect credit. I give you the perfect house. I give you the life without the baggage. Jesus is the one that does that. So what does it mean then, church, for us to steward our privilege well? It means this, to know God's heart, to make decisions accordingly, and watch God revive, redeem, and restore. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are the great restorer. You are the great redeemer. And yet, God, we so often try to redeem ourselves. We, we like the idea of making decisions. And so often, God, we're not making them according to what you said. We make our decisions, and then we decide if we agree with what you said. And yet, God, even in that, even in the, in the ways in which we uh, run away from you and rebel in our decision-making, God, you still, in your love for us, you still have a plan. You still love us. You don't, re you don't reject us. You don't remove us. You redeem us. God, we're so thankful that even in the ways that we have, like the prodigal, we have spent all of whatever capital we had. We have spent everything spiritually. We are completely undone. And yet you say, despite your bank account being zero, I buy you back. I restore you. I love you. God, we are overwhelmed by this kind of radical love. The ways in which not only did Jesus steward this privilege of perfection for such imperfect people, you did this and you called us to yourself and then you empower us to live like you, to love like you, to steward privilege like you. God, thank you for the ways in which you are even reshaping our hearts right now. And I pray that uh, as we ponder this, as we think on this, as we dig into this, Lord, help us to see your heart. Help us to make difficult decisions with your heart and mind first.
Thank you for your restoration in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not a better picture of restoration than when we come to this table. When we come to this table, what we're saying is ultimately we are in communion with the great restorer. And we are in communion with those who have been restored. And so when you live like one who's been restored and one who's being restored, then all the ways in your life where, man, I really see I'm still not there. I'm still not, I'm not, I'm not looking like my restorer right now. Thankfully, we don't have to live in shame. We can bring that to him. And he says, I'm your restorer, which means I'm faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. I'm faithful and just to remove, to make your sins as far as the east is from the west. So ultimately, when we come to the table, we're coming with a heart of repentance. We come with a heart of joy. We come with a heart of thanksgiving. We come with a heart of victory. And we also come with a heart of repentance. Lord, all the ways that I have still fallen short, all the ways that I'm still not perfect, all the ways that you're still remaking me, I have your heart toward that too. And I know that breaks you. We always want the rejoicing. We never want the mourning. And Jesus says, you can bring both here because I'm remaking you through that. So if this is true for you, if you can ultimately say, I know that this is my greatest joy, I know that this is my greatest hope, I also know that this truth empowers me to mourn and hate and battle sin, then this table is for you. This isn't for the, the one who feels like, hey, I've got it all together, or uh, I haven't really done a whole lot of things, so I don't think I'm, this applies to me, or Jesus knows that we're good, I don't need to go into all of those other things. This, this isn't that, because ultimately, Jesus wants to meet you exactly where you are. All the things that make you happy and all the things that break you. He wants all of it. He, he, Jesus is not the faulty redeemer. Jesus is not the redeemer that says, I love you when you're like this. I don't love you when you're like that. He doesn't say, I love you as long as you don't have the baggage. He says, I want it all. If this is true for you, then come to this table in your brokenness, in your humility, trusting that the only hope I have the only hope that's built in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that when we do communion, we do communion by the process of intinction. And so what that means as we start in the back, uh, you'll come up and you'll take a, a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it in either wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. You think about this incredible meal, yet an, a, a meal where the Jewish people would always remember who the great redeemer, the great restorer, what he did to, to, to actually save them from certain death. Remembering it over and over again. And Jesus says, listen, my Jewish family, this, 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 this food, this meal, this celebration that we're taking part in, you didn't know this, but this has been pointing to me the whole time. This bread that you've been eating for years and years, this bread is my body given for you. Then he takes the cup in the same way and he says, this cup, we've been drinking from cups like these for thousands of years. This cup, this cup is my blood. Blood that's poured out for the remission of sins. Blood of a new covenant. You know what Jesus was saying? Your restorer is here. Your redeemer is here. Regardless of what level of brokenness and sadness and failures that you have, Jesus says your Redeemer is here. Our prayer every single Sunday is that this will be a day for some that would be the first day they can say, I have taken, I have partaken of my Redeemer.
if this is true for you, if this is your joy, if you can honestly say this is my greatest hope, then let's eat together. Let's taste and see that our Redeemer, the Lord, is indeed good.